0: You'll remember last week, we began a series of messages that is attached to a building campaign on what it means to create an environment that is accessible. Everybody say the word accessible. We want everybody to be able to come and access what God wants to say to them. And we want it to be an environment where people know that they are welcome. And loved, no matter what their background, no matter what their situation, no matter what their political point of view, no matter what their ethnicity, that they are human beings that are created in the image of God and we love them and want them here. Is that right? We do. And so we're trying to just say to people, come. And we want to create an environment that, of course, is like never before, inviting toward others. And we're calling that a come and see environment. Last week, you'll remember, we reviewed in the scripture the theology or the outreach strategy used by Jesus himself called come and see. And literally, we're quoting the scripture. And of course, used by some of the earliest followers of Jesus. When God had changed their life, they said, hey, come and see. Come and see the difference that Jesus has made for me. Well, Because it is Mother's Day, and because everybody has a mom that we should celebrate, including the woman that I'm going to invite to join me on stage, she has a compelling story about how a come-and-see environment really just made a difference for her. I mean, we're wanting to improve it, but she's talking about what God's done in her life to have hope and healing, and Jesus has just made a difference for her. Her name is Sandy Williams. She is a mom of three, and I'd love for her to share her story. Let's hear it for Sandy as she comes.
1: Good morning, North Point family. My name is Sandy, and I wanna share a little bit of my story with you this morning. I was first invited to attend North Point Community Church over two years ago, after God gave me the strength and courage to exit out of a mentally and emotionally abusive marriage the year prior. As a single mom of three children, ages four, seven, and 10, and stepmom to two daughters ages 13 and 17 at that time, I was broken and unsure of what God might have planned for my life and the lives of my children. I carried a heavy burden of guilt and shame as this was my second failed marriage. I was attending another small church that I had been a part of for three years, serving on their worship team but found myself struggling to create authentic connections. I navigated through custody and divorce proceedings and experienced fear, stress, anxiety, often having what I referred to as crybaby moments in the car driving, at work, and at home. I gathered the strength to continue working full-time as a social worker, pouring into the lives of others at work, and using what energy I had left to take care of my children. At the end of the day, I was drained physically, mentally, and emotionally, sustained only by God's promise of a peaceful and hopeful future. God began to use me in my struggles to be a blessing to others as I found the courage to share my story and learn to reinvite God's redeeming love into my heart again. I began to feel God, God tug at my heart to make a change for several months, but did not know what that looked like. One day, my dear coworker, cycling partner and friend of a few years, Frank, invited me to attend North Point with him and his wife, Faye. These friends were aware of my circumstances and had been used by God to support me amidst my struggles. In January 2020, my children and I attended our first service and immediately felt welcomed and at home. Within the next month, Frank and Faye invited me to join their small group on Thursday evenings and my children and I were quickly adopted into this amazing group of God-loving people. After meeting only a couple of times, I felt like I had always been a part of this group. Despite the pandemic, we met via Zoom on a regular basis and supported one another through life changes, health struggles, and emotional challenges. This group became an extension of my family and each member was used by God to support me in my healing process. In July of 2021, God blessed me with a remote position as a licensed clinical social worker, which allowed me to have the time and flexibility to invest in serving others using my gift of singing. In August 2021, after encouragement from my friend Frank, and God's pulling on my heart, I stepped out in faith and expressed my desire to learn more about the music ministry team on a connection card. Soon after, I met with leaders Kyle and Megan and excitedly joined the worship team. I have been joyfully serving approximately once per month since then. Much like my experience when I first attended North Point, my children and I were quickly welcomed and adopted into the worship ministry family. North Point has become a safe place of continued mental and emotional healing and spiritual growth for me and my children. Thank you.
0: Isn't that awesome? It's just awesome. It's awesome. And I know that seated here right now in this room are hundreds of stories where you could say, Jesus has made the difference in my life. But Jesus always works through people. Jesus was a person, and Jesus works through persons. Now, a few moments ago, we read a compelling case study, Ashton did with you, that Paul was sent by a missionary, or excuse me, Paul was sent as a missionary by God to Macedonia to plant a church. Would you grab your notes? Because we're going to go through this very quickly. He went to uh, Macedonia to plant a church, which Macedonia is a part of Greece, by the way. It's the biggest city In Philippi and all the incidents that you just heard read by Ashton take place in Philippi. Everybody say Philippi. These uh, are instructive for us because you get to see what happened when Paul took the gospel to one community or to one city because here we are in the Fresno County area in one city and we are trying to reach a community. Now, I'd like to show you what happened to three people. These are three stories whose lives were changed out of a church in one community in the city of what? Philippi. Philippi. How many of you want to see lives changed? Who wants to see Jesus make a difference? I hope you do. Because Jesus is in the business of changing lives. My goodness, I hope you're here this morning expecting your life to be changed. Because he can do that. Now, he looks at Lydia, a woman named Lydia. He looks at a slave girl who is demon-possessed. And he looks at a jailer and what happened to them. And what I want us to do is just draw some implications. Listen, what gives birth to a gospel-oriented vision that a church would change people's lives and be involved in that. What happened to these guys? Let's take a look. First, there's Lydia. And we're told from the very beginning of the passage, take a look, that she was a worshiper of God. Now, that, by the way, is a technical term, meaning she's non-Jewish, she's a Gentile, and even though she was raised to worship multiple gods, for some reason she was attracted to the God of the Bible. That's what a worshiper of God meant. And so she would join the Jews every Sabbath, and she would read the Bible, and she would pray with Jewish believers. She was a traitor, in fact. It says that she was, we can read it together, look at the next scripture, she was a dealer in what? Purple cloth. Now, by the way, in the first century, that's a luxury good. Not everybody had purple cloth. Most commentators believe that Lydia was probably wealthy, she was well put together, she was probably successful, and yet Lydia knew there was something that was wrong. Lydia knew that there was something that was missing in her life, and that's why she was looking to the God of the Bible. So the question is, what did Paul say to her? Now, I'm going to admit, it doesn't tell us. We know from the rest of the book of Acts, though, when you study the Apostle Paul and when he met with people who believed the Bible, we kind of know what he would do. Paul made it his habit to go to the synagogues to try and talk about Jesus to people who believe the Bible because he knew there would be people that would come to church who believe the Bible but whose lives really haven't been changed. So strategically, he'd go there first and say, I'm going to talk to people. By the way, don't assume that every person you're sitting around right now is a born-again believer. Some people are here and they're curious. Some people are here because a crowd draws a crowd. But some people are here, they haven't really surrendered their lives to God, but, but they like the God of the Bible, or they're trying to learn something about the God of the Bible. What kind of a thing would Paul have said to her? He would have said something like this, Lydia, I know you're seeking the blessing of God. You're reading all these wonderful stories in the Bible. I mean, Lydia, you're reading about David. You're reading about Joseph. You're reading about Esther. He says, and you might be thinking, Lydia, oh, if I were just as brave as the David who fought Goliath, what a story. Or look at Esther. Esther was the queen. Nobody knew she was Jewish. But that's the story. And in order to identify with the people, in order to save her people, she risked losing everything. Losing her power, losing her palace. Oh. Lydia, you're thinking if you were as dedicated as Esther, then you might get God's blessing. If you were as brave as David, if you were as dedicated as Esther or Lydia, you look at Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, but eventually he gets the power of the throne and once he has the power, what does he do with it? He forgives his brother and saves the people, doesn't he? And so Lydia, you read the Bible and you're reading this every weekend and you're thinking if I were as forgiving as Joseph, if I were as dedicated as Esther, if I were as brave as David, then maybe God would bless my life. By the way, let me remind you again of what we're doing here at North Point right now. We are discussing throughout this entire series how do we as a church do a better job reaching people with questions. How do we further create an environment that melds the sacred with the secular so that the community can say, that's our place. That's where we go. That's what we're doing. Now, do you know what Paul probably said to Lydia? Paul probably said to her, Lydia, I got to tell you, I love that you're coming to synagogue, but you're missing the point of the Bible. See, Lydia, there was a greater David who fought the ultimate Goliath of sin and death. He fought the ultimate giant. And by the way, Lydia, the ultimate David, he didn't just risk his life, he lost his life. It was Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, Lydia, you're never going to be as brave as David until you rest in the one to whom David points. Or, Lydia, you're reading the story of Esther, and you're a woman, she's a woman, and you want to be like Esther, but don't you see, Esther risked losing the palace to identify with the people. But can't you see that Jesus, the Christ, is the ultimate Esther? He lost the ultimate palace, heaven. He came to earth to identify with his people. He did that for you. And now, now, Lydia, you're safe. Your sins can be paid for. He loves you no matter what. You can be secure. Lydia, don't you see to whom Esther points? Don't you see to whom David points? Or when you see this man, Joseph, forgiving people, he has all the power, yet he forgives his brother. What an example, and you're trying to live up to it, Lydia, but when you see Jesus, he is the ultimate Joseph. He's on the cross forgiving you and me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul would have told Lydia, look... It's not about being as brave as David or as humble as Esther. It's not about us being as forgiving as Joseph. You just have to trust and believe in the one to whom those three people point. And you know what Lydia said? We do know this. Now, Paul would have done something like that, I'm telling you, because we know Paul's method. And what happened to Lydia after he talks to her? We're told, and I quote, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, to respond means to be attracted. In other words, she found the message beautiful and she became a Christian. That's the story of Lydia. First story. Let's turn to the second story, shall we? You've got a slave girl. Now, this story is is a bit more dramatic. Listen to what it says. Let's read it again. It says, once they were going to the place of prayer, they were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she did what? What did she do? predicted the future, and she earned a lot of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, in the Greek, I want you to understand this line, who had a spirit which she predicted the future, literally in the Greek, if you read this in the Greek, what you would read is that they were met by a female slave who had the spirit of a python. Now, you're never going to find that in your English translations. You'll say, Shane, I've never read that, spirit of a python. But it's because English translators don't want to confuse modern readers. Well, what was the spirit of the python? The spirit of the python was the oracle of Delphi. So when a girl like this, or a boy, would fall into trances and go into uncontrollable fits, they would begin to speak in all sorts of strange voices, high voices and low voices, and they would begin to prophesy the future. And when people saw that in Philippi, they would have said, oh, that person has the spirit of the python. That was normal or at least it was normal that they would have recognized it. They can predict the future and they made a lot of money that way. Now what happened to her? How does she find Jesus? I want to ask you a question. Did she find Jesus the way that Lydia found Jesus? No. Nope. In fact, it was really different. Think about this. Lydia was what kind of person? Lydia is a business owner. Lydia is a put-together person. Lydia, this person that we're talking about now is a broken person. Lydia was sort of at the top. The slave girl is at the bottom. She's a slave economically. She's a slave physically. She's demon-possessed. She's oppressed spiritually. I'm going to tell you what the slave girl does not need is she does not need a reasoned discourse like Lydia. She doesn't need somebody to come and just talk to her about philosophy and the Old Testament figures. No, what this girl needs is a power encounter with Jesus. She needs to be freed. And so what does Paul do? Let's look at the Scripture. Paul looks at her and says, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her and she was liberated. Now, I know I get into a Scripture about demon possession and people start to ask, well, What's that all about, demon possession? And I do just want to say, I'm not going to go into that today. By the way, later in the year, we do have a series we're going to do on spiritual warfare where we might talk about that a little bit more. However, let me just say something about demon possession. In the Bible, it's clear that usually it was only in the most extreme cases. But there is something that is true of all of us before we meet Jesus, and that is... Everybody who's actually ever met Jesus recognizes that they are spiritually enslaved before they meet Jesus. How does that work? Well, some months ago, I read a great great quote from a commencement speech at Kenyon College. It was this guy right here. His name is David Foster Wallace. And he was talking about in real life, in your life, and in my life, adult lives, there's no thing as atheism. People say they're atheists, but they're not. Here's what he says. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing a real God to worship is pretty much that anything else you worship will eat you alive. He goes on, he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Be seen as being smart and you will end up feeling stupid. You'll feel like a fraud. You'll always be on the verge of being found out. Now, what, is, what was he saying at this commencement speech? He was saying, guys, it's better to worship God because, listen, a person who seeks power is controlled by power. A person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to accept them. And don't you see what he's saying? He's saying, in the end, everybody's living for something. In the end, everybody's enslaved and oppressed. You live for your career, you live for your beauty, you live for your family, Family. you live for this or that political point of view. What Wallace says is, listen, if you're not living for the real God, it will eat you alive. It'll drive you into the ground. It will create anxiety in your life. Oh my goodness, the anxiety of people today. What is the gospel message that we're trying to get out to a world that needs him? It is this, that Jesus the Christ is the only master. And if you say, Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are my master. Jesus is the only master that if you get him will totally satisfy you. Because he's the only master who dies for your sins. Your career isn't going to die for your sins. Come on, is anybody here with me? Your career's not gonna die for your sins. Your money's not gonna die for your sins. Therefore, I want you to see that this slave girl was, yes, in an extreme situation, but everybody, until they come under the liberating lordship of Jesus Christ, is spiritually oppressed. Everybody needs to be liberated. Can you see that? So here's Lydia. Let's go back. Here's Lydia. Here's the slave girl. Two utterly different kinds of people, and they both find Jesus. Let's talk about the third one. You ready? Do you remember who the third one was? Who was it? The jailer. jailer. There we go. And who was the jailer? Well, if you know your history, you'll know that the jailer must have been an ex-military man. He must have been an ex-Roman soldier, because in those days... The way you got retirement was if you faithfully serve as a Roman soldier in the military, then they'll give you a government job like this in retirement. So this was an ex-soldier, I'm sure. And the scripture says that Paul and Silas are beaten by the crowd within an inch of their lives. The next scripture says after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. Now, I want to say this. The jailer is not nearly as pulled together as Lydia, probably. Not, not doing as well as Lydia. Much more, much more cynical probably about life. But the jailer is not as broken as the slave girl. Doesn't need a reasoned discourse, not intellectual. On the other hand, this jailer is not somebody who necessarily needs a power encounter. What kind of guy is this? He's a former Roman soldier. What does that mean? That means this guy would be a brutal, practical man... He would have been hard-bitten. He would be cynical about life. He would have been pragmatic. And do you know what he gets? Listen, this is what he gets. It's totally different than the other two. He gets a vision of how the gospel can completely and practically change your life. Think about this for just a minute. First of all, Paul and Silas are here at night. They've been beaten. They're severely flogged and thrown into prison. And it says after they were flogged, They're they're in there, and the jailer is commanded to guard them carefully. But you need to understand, Paul's a Roman citizen, so Paul has been put in jail unjustly because a Roman citizen, until a trial, can't be put in the dungeon. So he's in there. He deserves to have a trial, but he's in there unjustly. But Paul, he's still in there, and what's Paul doing with Silas? It says, look, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and let's read it together. What were they doing? They were singing hymns to God. Now, guys, this is so exciting. I hope you're getting out of this. I mean, this is beautiful. Look at this. Paul is already liberated. Remember what David Foster Wallace said, he says, listen, if you live for anything, if you live for your career, if you live for your intellect, if you live for your money, you're put into prison, you go through a hard time in your life, and all those things are taken away from you, and then you really are in the deepest, darkest dungeon. You have no joy. But if you live for him, if his love is in you, you've got something to sing sing about no matter what you're going through. You've got joy. So here's the jailer, (laughs) and he's listening to these people, and they're singing, and he's like, what is going on? And there's this earthquake, and all at once, the prison doors fly open. And in those days, while it was a great retirement perk to, to be a soldier and to be able to have this retirement, to have a job, there was one catch. Anybody know what the catch was? If the prisoner escapes, what happens to you? You die. (laughs) What a job. Boy, you thought getting fired was bad. (laughs) So when this guy sees the gates open, what does he do? The scripture says he drew his sword and he was just about to kill himself. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. (laughs) We're still in here. Now, guys, I'm going to ask you a question. You need to think on this. Why would Paul do that? Would you do that? Why would Paul have kept, he said, we're still in here, not I'm still in here. Why would Paul have kept everybody in? Especially when he had the right to leave. Oh my gosh, the last three years, there have been so many talks about my rights, my rights. Paul has the right to leave. He's unjustly imprisoned. He's choosing to stick around. And the jailer knows that Paul has sacrificed his freedom. And he's never seen anything like this before. Here is a brutal man. Here's a Roman soldier. What do they do? You repay evil for evil. I mean, it is eye for eye. It is tooth for tooth. And here are these crazy Christians that have joy even in the midst of darkness and are willing to sacrifice their freedom to save his skin. And the jailer is thinking... What's with you people? (laughs) They've never seen this kind of poise. Have you ever seen this kind of peace? They've never seen this kind of love. They're not looking out for themselves. They're looking out for him. And then I I can imagine, that doesn't say this, but stay with me. I can imagine Paul looks at him and says, oh, you've never seen anybody overcome evil with good? (laughs) Oh, brother, let me tell you about the one who is the ultimate example of overcoming evil with good. Come on. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner, and he wasn't just beaten. He was killed. And he could have left. He could have called 10,000 angels and could have escaped. But instead, he went into death and darkness to save you and to save me. Amen. That deserves an applause because that's what he did. And the jailer says, what does he say in response to that simple message? He says, let's read it together. Come on. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to get this Jesus into my life? He wants something. Now, guys, you've got to see where I'm going here as we talk about come and see and what we want our church to be. And if you're here at a guest, I want you to know we want our church to be this for you. Lydia needed a rational account. Lydia needed somebody to walk through the Bible with her. The slave girl needed a power encounter with Jesus Christ. The jailer learned that if I could just have this in my life, I could face anything like these guys. But you all understand they were all changed in different ways. So what do we learn? This is one chapter, one church, one group of people in what's the city? Come on, Philippi. Philippi. But what gave birth to this gospel vision that three different people? Well, there's some implications and I'm gonna close with them. I'm gonna give them to you fast. Are you ready? I'm not gonna have you write a lot today. You looked at the notes today and you thought, praise God, he's not gonna go long. <laughs> Man, it's not like Pastor Shane, but uh, no, I'm gonna close out with these. Are you ready? Here's some things as we talk about come and see. I want you to remember, you think about these stories. Number one, what gives birth to a gospel vision in a community, and a church? The first thing has gotta be need need. In fact, one of the things that you learn from the story is because everybody needs the gospel, the gospel is for everybody. Write that down. Everybody. Now, I say that because a long time ago, I heard a skeptic said to me over coffee, you know, Christianity is just a white European religion. So they said, don't assume everybody needs Christianity because it's just white, it's European." Everybody has their own religion, so don't be so arrogant as to think. That, have any of you ever heard anything like that? And I, and I looked at him and I said, well, that's fine that you think that, but I would just pose to you here in the crowd today. Maybe you think that. Who were these three people? Lydia is an Asian. She's from a city called Thyatira. The slave girl is a Greek. She's possessed by, an, by the Oracle of Delphi. The jailer is a what? Roman, and not only do they have these differences in their ethnic background, but Lydia is a well-off businesswoman, the slave girl is an oppressed, broken person, and the jailer is sort of middle class. These guys are as different as you could be. What is Luke saying? What is the Bible saying? Friends, come on. What is history saying? First, it's this. The idea... That Christianity as a white Western religion is an absolute lie. It is a crock. Don't let any college professor tell you that. that, is, that they, their degree should be stripped for uttering such a thing. Stupidity at its best. Ignorance. Think about this. In the last 2,000 years, at one point, most of the Christians in the world were actually Jews. Did you know that? At another point, most of the Christians were Greeks and Romans. Did you know that? At another point, most of the Christians were Europeans. That's the part of history that we came out of. But do you know where most of the Christians live right now? It's not America. Most Christians right now, if you want to look at who are the Christian nations in the world right now, it's Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Christianity is declining in the West. I wouldn't even call us a Christian nation at this point. But Christianity is exploding like never before in these other nations. Why? Because the gospel always moves around the world. It always does. The gospel's for everybody. By the way, there are more I wish I could give you the stats. I couldn't dig them up and I didn't have time, but there are more Christians in the world right now than there is populations of any other nation of the world. There there is more growing Christianity than anything in the world. You're on the winning team. Why? Because the gospel is for everybody. I know it's easy to look and say, well, yeah, but it feels like it's declining. Yeah, here in America, genuinely it is. We need our church to step up. We need our people to say, I'm going to say, come and see. Come and see the difference that this man has made in my life. But you can't look at anybody and say, well, that race or that group or that culture, they don't need the gospel. Don't you dare say that person would never become a Christian. Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian, it's a miracle. You're not in some insider's club that belongs to you. That's why we want as many outsiders. Guys, I want this church so full of outsiders that they don't even know what to do. Do we stand up here? Do we sit down here? I want people. A lot of you complain that people come to church and leave early. I want people that don't know enough that they'd leave early. I want people who are educated as to what the church life is like. Because of all of the purposes that we have to live for, the one that we have a time limit on is evangelism. We're going to worship God for the rest of our days. And so when you look at this chart up here that I gave you last week, and I tell you the vision of North Point Church, it is all about taking people and moving them from the community, them becoming a part of our consistent crowd, but ultimately becoming convinced of the person of Jesus Christ. And so when I talk to you about, and you, you, know, you have this card, and I talk to you about making a commitment to even renovating our campus and when I say the gospel is for everybody, and you look at the things that we want to do, why do we want to do it? Because we want to merge the sacred and the secular and say to the community, come every day of the week and hang. Gosh, if I had my way, the church would be more like a park or a sports complex or a coffee shop all the time. So that the community would come and say, wow. And then, yeah, it's one that has chapel services Multiple times a week so that people would come to know Jesus Christ. Think of the potential in our culture today. That we have to take the gospel into the world. You know why? Listen, I'm going to hit this very quickly because I'm going to have to finish here. But do you know that the gospel is actually the unifying power the world needs? Do you know that? Listen to me. Let's say these three people I talked about just lived in Fresno today. If they did, they'd have nothing to do with each other. Lydia would have been a business owner. The slave girl would have been a 17-year-old drug-addicted prostitute, probably in the tower or downtown. The jailer would, that would be a police officer, blue-collar. And you know, these three people would probably never even cross paths. And if they did, they probably wouldn't like each other. What does John Stott, the famous theologian, say in his commentary about this chapter? I want you to see this. He says, racially, socially, and psychologically, these three people, they were worlds apart, but all three were changed by the same gospel, and all three were welcomed by the same church. Why? How do we know? Because it says at the end of the chapter, they were all there together. They went into Lydia's house, where they worshiped and encouraged one another. Why? Because the gospel brings people together. Come on. Do you see why the slave masters got so upset? Because now they couldn't exploit this girl anymore. And so they were really angry, and so they stirred up a riot. How did they stir up a riot? How'd they do that? Do you remember? What did they say? It says they started to stir up racial animosity. Racial animosity is the enemy of the gospel. What did they say? They said, these Jews, they called down the magistrates, these Jews... They're getting our city in an uproar, and us Romans, these Jews, us Romans, grrr. you know. Why? Because human beings are so prone to separating. Look at all the racial diversity that we have in Fresno, California. Walk out there. My goodness, just take a look around right now. Look at who I see. Go ahead, look around in the chairs. You'll see racial diversity like you couldn't believe. West Fresno, Northwest Fresno. And in reality, if you and I walk out into the community, we're going to see for the most part, people stick together in their groups. The groups don't connect. They stay apart. Talk about need. People unifying is the biggest need in the world today. There is a need because we don't know how to get along. We don't know how to build bridges. Now, if anybody should take lead on what that looks like, shouldn't it be the church... Shouldn't the gospel unify people across barriers of race, across barriers of class and gender? Why? Because I'm going to tell you something. When a person becomes a Christian, if you've not become a Christian yet, I want to tell you this. When a person becomes a Christian, it changes your identity so much. Lydia and the slave girl, they're now sisters in Christ. They're not different. Once Lydia becomes a sister to a drug addicted, demon possessed, prostitute, demon possessed girl, do you think she's ever gonna look at a drug addicted prostitute the same? No. Think about barriers. You know, in this day, the average Orthodox Jew male said when he got up in the morning, he began to pray. It was a very famous prayer. It was old Jewish men would pray it. This is in Paul's day. The Jews would get up and they would pray something like this. Oh, Lord, I thank thee that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Can you believe that? Jewish men would get up in this day and pray. They still pray it today, some, by the way. Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, think about what I just said. A woman... A slave and a Gentile. Now you know why Luke chose those three. (laughs) A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. It's a very famous prayer. What's Luke trying to say? Luke's trying to say that kind of sexism, that kind of racism, that kind of classism, you're superior to women, your Jews are superior. No, no, no. Listen, what gives you worth? What gives you significant? I'm going to tell you right now. If you're here and you're a man, you're a man second, you're a Christian first. If you're here and you're a mom, God bless you on Mother's Day, but you're a mom second, you're a Christian first. You are loved in Christ first. You are black or white second. You are loved in Christ first. You are rich or middle class or poor second. Those distinctions are gone. My Bible says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. All of you are one in who? Christ Jesus. What the world needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That famous missionary, Leslie Newbigin, I'll never forget. He would always say... What the world needs is the gospel of Christ, and people would say to him, oh, that's so divisive, that's so divisive. Don't you see what, we don't need the gospel, we need a united humankind. You know what he said? He said, Christians also want unity of humankind, but don't you people understand that unity is not to be found by repeating words like justice? Justice. And love and peace and peace. No, we Christians believe that the unity of the human race will be found in the person of Jesus Christ, in whom God is reconciling the whole world. And when I take the gospel into the world and I convert people, it not only saves people, but it brings people together. It changes our attitude. Guys, there is no more potent vision than peace between people, than the gospel. That's why we need it. And that's why we need to figure out ways to communicate the gospel, to connect with people, to merge the sacred with the secular when we're talking about people. And to open up an environment. What gives birth to a gospel vision? Need. Boy, that was a long point, wasn't it? I'm going to get you out of here by 2 o'clock. Let's move on. Number two. Just kidding. Number two. Write this word down. Potential. What gives birth to a gospel vision? Potential. Now, I just want to say, do you know your potential as a church? Guys, I am so fortunate to be a pastor of this church. I am so fortunate to be one of the shepherds of this church because you have no idea what I see. I get to see everybody, and I probably know more people here than any of you. And I get to see everybody. I look at our diversity. I look at our class diversity, our racial diversity, our background diversity, and it it gives me hope for Fresno. Because I know what can be done here. In fact, I was thinking about this just the other day. I was at early morning prayer. I invite you to join me for early morning prayer every Tuesday and Thursday because I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you guys, the real work is prayer. Evangelism is just mopping up after. (laughs) The real work is prayer. So I invite you to join me for prayer every Tuesdays and Thursdays. But it hit my mind, who's in early morning prayer? It's just a little microcosm of our church. And you wouldn't believe the diversity of people. So I asked him, put together a little commercial of what we do at early morning prayer. So just take a look at this group, take a
1: look. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one.
0: It's a great little commercial, by the way, for early morning prayer. But you see what I'm talking about. What gives birth to a gospel vision? All right, we said need, we said potential. Write this last one down, people do, people do. So we need to take the gospel into the world. And I've been talking to you about a campaign as to one of the ways that we're doing it. Now, to be clear, it's not the only way we're doing it. It's one dream in a million dreams that we have. Can I be honest with you? I'm talking to you guys about this dream and I already feel like it's old vision. I wish I could unload to you plans (laughs) for future vision. In my head, I've been thinking about this for years, though. And I'm just saying that to create a place that's compassionate, how did Lydia become a Christian? Do you know God will use you even if you don't think you can be used? How did Lydia become a Christian? What does it say? Could we go to that scripture, Acts 16? It says one of those listening was a woman from Thyatira named Lydia. And it says that the last line, it says, the Lord opened her, what? Was it Paul's brilliance that led her to the Lord? No. Who did that? God. You think, oh, I can't do it. I'm scared to do it. I'm not good enough to do it. Some of you are thinking, I'm not compassionate like Paul. I can't do what Paul did. Baloney, you think that Paul was compassionate? Let's go to the slave girl story for a minute. You think Paul was all that? He wasn't perfect. It says, when she and the members of her household were baptized, uh, 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 keep on going to to her story. Sorry, not this verse. Go to the next one. It says, she kept this up for many days, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High. And Paul finally, look at this. It says, Paul finally became so what? Was it compassion? (laughs) Paul had an anger problem. (laughs) Some of you are thinking, I can't make a difference. Oh, yes, you can. We're all flawed, but together we can reach our community. Do you guys see that? I want to lead us in a prayer, then I'm going to make some closing comments about our campaign. But I hope you see, I'm trying to do my dead level best to give you the biblical values and the biblical teaching as to why these things are so critical and that we think about them. It's not about raising money, but we do want to raise money because of the biblical values. God's not into raising money by the way God's into raising kids and it's a maturity issue in our life that he says will you live for my kingdom Father I pray with every person here and now just asking in Jesus name that you would bless them and encourage them I pray you would fill them with your hope and your strength and your power I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you that they would come to know you but ultimately Jesus we just need you We commit ourselves to you. We re-re-surrender, Lord. We re-surrender, and we just say we love you. God help us, in your precious name, and everyone said amen. Amen. Guys, I want you to take your notes real quick. I know some of you put them away, but take them and go to the inside flat. I didn't cover this uh, last week, and I felt like I should. I wanna make sure you understand when we talk about our building campaign and where we're going, that we have campaign values that are so important Again, I'm not gonna read these three in detail, but in case you didn't go online, I want you to read these, because I want you to know we're trying to do this thing with integrity. I do want to announce that in two weeks, in two weeks is Commitment Sunday. So not next week, but the next week, I'm asking you all to bring back your cards after prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit, prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit, ask Jesus, what do you want me to do? And be obedient. You know, my wife and I, by the way, we can't give a giant gift. We're not wealthy people. We're definitely no Lydia. We're somewhere in between there. But I'm going to tell you, we're making a three-year commitment because we know over three years we can do something as our pastors. And so I'm just asking you to ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do as it relates to this stuff? I'm going to turn it back to Pastor Mike. He's going to close.